Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to cover the wonderful world of ARM processors and their seemingly unstoppable dominance in the market. There's even a new 80-core processor that's making Intel and AMD shiver. We're going to help you understand how to distinguish the specs of an ARM processor in our brain filler And in this week's Camera Corner, Wendy will be answering some listener camera questions that were submitted. All of this and more coming up. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Addicts starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, our resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, as well as Michael, the software sage and hardware padawan. So let's find out what everyone's been up to this week. So Michael, what hardware quests have you engaged in? So I've been actually looking into a couple of things. I started looking into some teleprompter equipment and also some ergonomic like wrist support stuff. And uh, I first want to talk about the teleprompter equipment. Actually, by the way, the pronunciation of teleprompter, I assume, is teleprompter. Wow. Because they have three capital letters in the same. I mean, what are you going for the president of the United States or something? Why do you need a teleprompter? I'm doing a teleprompter. Well, actually, I don't need it. I just wanted to try it out and see if it would make it better. But because I do uh, videos. Hardware addicts. Yes, that too. Fair enough. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I needed to try and get some hardware stuff. That's it. But I also do like videos on YouTube and stuff and variety of, of things that I do, most of which don't require me to be in front of the camera, but the times I, that it does, it, it's a, a weird system that I have where I basically create an outline and then I have no idea what I'm going to say and then I just start winging it completely. And that's probably not the best way for efficiency. So I wanted to try out like doing a tra- teleprompter thing so you like write a script or like a, not necessarily a script, but maybe like a, a short, you know, synopsis sort of thing. So I know what I wanted to do in the different sections and then do it that way. And I looked into it and found that teleprompter stuff is possible to do DIY, but it always, there's this one big catch where when you get certain types of glass, they'll have like this weird ghosting effect. So it makes it harder to read. And I didn't want to deal with that. So I went on Amazon and found a solution. Kind of defeats the purpose if you're sitting there squinting at your teleprompter, right? If you can't read it. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So, and so in order to in order to find the glass that I needed, I had to do some research to find out what it's called. And it turns out it's called beam splitting glass. And what it does is that it one side has reflectiveness and the other side doesn't. So it stops that ghosting effect. And those pieces of glass are a lot more expensive than regular glass. So the price of that beam splitting glass is like the same price, essentially, of the whole teleprompter thing. Because it's like you pay an extra 40 bucks and you get a whole set versus the $50 thing of the glass itself. And it just seemed like I might as well try to get the whole thing. Well, what Wendy has taught us is it's all about the glass. I don't know about teleprompters, but we know that's for cameras. So it makes sense. It's the same thing for a teleprompter. Yeah, it sounds similar. Yeah, I, I, I just thought I, I was wondering because I was, I was looking at these videos and they were explaining like the their usage of it and how it worked. And I already knew how to use one. I just never bothered to actually do it. And since I, I basically wanted to try it out because it looks like it would save me a lot of time as far as like efficiency of making content. So that's what I wanted to try. And I think it will be pretty cool. It might not work, but we'll see. And I'll, I'll give you an update the next time when I actually get it 
So, Wendy, how did you feed your addiction this week? Well, first of all, I have an update on the desktop top. Yes. So after I got done recording the show last time, I got it all put together, super excited. And this beast of a case, man, the airflow through it, it it's designed for good airflow. And the numbers on my system have gotten even better with keeping everything nice and cool. My biggest complaint is I've got stock fans on the front and they're loud. So in the top, I've got two 200 millimeter Noctua fans. And in the front, I have three, four 140 millimeter fans. I'm going to replace those with more Noctua fans to have still a very quiet, but lots of air pressure. So I do, I have a positive air pressure system. Very nice. So well yes. planned out. And are, is the sound you're hearing, is it a vibration noise or is it more of just the fan spinning at a high RPM? It's not vibration because I went for the extra, what, five bucks and got Noctua's silicone mounting. Very so it, it's not the vibration noise. It is the fans. They're a little noisier. And I'm just going to replace those stock fans with the awesome Noctua ones and make sure that I still have awesome cooling power but tone down that overall system noise. Well, I can't wait to see more pictures of it when it's all done. And what case did you end up with again? It is Thermal Lake Core X71, I believe is what it's called. It's a monster of a case. It's huge. It looks massive on my desk, but I love it. Yeah, the bigger <laughs> the case, the better always. I Even back in the day, there were these giant full tower cases that... I don't even think they had a real brand. You would just order them for the company and they were just huge. And it was so much easier as a technician to work on something like that because you just had so much room to move your hands around and to get components in without cutting yourself because, you know, I guess it's around today with cheaper cases, but especially back then they didn't have the rolled metal idea. So everything was like a razor inside. My hands look like like I worked in, uh, I don't know, thorn shrubbery or something because I had scratches (laughs) all over me constantly working on the sharp edges of cases. It's improved a lot today for the most part, but a big case, you just can't go wrong with it if you have the space. Right. And then you have excuses to, you know, put more stuff in it. Future upgrades, always a necessity. Absolutely. But the most important thing that people are going to be asking about, because obviously they listen to every episode, does it have a five and a quarter bays? It does. It actually does. So I do not have the hot swappable drive yet, but it is one of the future upgrades to this case. I made sure that it would have the five and a half inch bay. So when I got that, the icy dock, I had a place to put it. And then one more quick thing is I've started putting together a kitchen system. And what kind of sparked this overall idea was listening to deal and extend. I guess it's been quite a few weeks ago and listening to Nate talk about his And I usually have a laptop sitting on the counter as I do different things, you know, looking up recipes, watching, mostly listening to videos and different things as I'm cooking. I spend a lot of my time in the kitchen. The laptop I have is the only one, is the only laptop that my daughter can game on. So she will come sneak it away from me. And then I go to turn around and look something up and, you know, my computer's gone. Good for her, bad for me. Right. So we've had a listener, Joe that showed me a super awesome way to get this done. And it's the HP 8300. You can buy them on eBay for right around a hundred bucks with the i5 in it 
for the most part, pretty clean machines. They've been in like workstations and businesses and stuff. They do an amazing job, such a small form factor to make a kitchen system. So I don't have everything mounted yet. It's in the kitchen. It's only on the counter, but I'm going to get it wall mounted. I'm going to get the monitor mounted underneath our cabinets. So it's a work in progress, but thank you so much, Joe, for letting me know about this HP 8300. They are an amazing little computer and definitely something that our listeners, hardware our listeners can get their hands on for not much money and put together these little systems like that. I'm so jealous you are geeking out your kitchen with computers. I feel like (laughs) I can't be outdone in this. So for everybody who wants to know, next week I'll be installing a Threadripper in my kitchen server setup. and (laughs) Naturally. With two 4K monitors in my kitchen. Yeah, that that's awesome, though. No, really, I, I think that's such a great thing to do. And the reality is, you know, anytime I'm in the kitchen cooking or anything, I'm usually online looking at a recipe and looking yeah. things up. So having that ease of having your computer right there or even built into your cabinetry. I mean, there's so many places you could go with this, right? You could have your monitor built into one of the one of the cabinet doors. I don't know. I'm dreaming. That'd be here. awesome. Yeah, that would be pretty awesome. <laughs> Well, Ryan, what have you been up to this last little bit? So I've got a new toy and I get in trouble for calling it a toy. At least I did when I back in the day I had a DJI Phantom back when they were, you know, first coming out and quite expensive. And I did a video on my YouTube channel, Dust Geek channel on it. And at one point I said, hey, I'm really scared to fly this thing because it's a really expensive toy. And I got some backlash for that because the drone community takes these drones very seriously. And rightfully so, right? A lot of them are used for professional application and things like that. Of course, for me, yeah. it was a toy. So, you know, that's why I consider it a toy. It's a very expensive adult toy, but a toy <laughs> nonetheless. But eventually I got rid of it because I cycle through my electronics. A lot of people don't know that, but a lot of the stuff I show on my channels and things, I, I generally will repair it, buy it used, broken or something, repair them and resell them and recycle the same money so that... I keep having a nice flow of technology without getting the Wi Fargo on me too much. And in this case, yeah. I wanted to get a new drone so to play with again because I feel like I really never pushed the Phantom to its limits while I had it. And so I went with this foldable drone, the Holy Stone HS270. And so this is a actually a pretty popular brand out there. Now they're more for the beginner drones but not beginner as in they don't have gps and you're going to crash it everywhere because one of the big things about drones if you've never flown one that has gps in it it's a whole different experience because the gps allows it to position itself and hold its position and correct itself where is without that gps you're doing all that manually so the wind blows and the thing goes five feet to the left into a tree that was that's pretty much the experience of trying to fly a drone without gps So this one has GPS capabilities in it, but still a lot lower cost. It has a lot of the same feature sets that you would see in the Phantom line. So you can set up custom flight paths, which it will follow. You can set it to follow me, which basically follows the phone in your hand as you move along. It has a pretty good long, uh, you know, control range. It has auto hover capabilities and a camera built in that states it films at 2.7K. I haven't really tested out the footage to see how good it is. But I assume it's acceptable based on some of the videos I've seen before I purchased it. I've had a lot of fun with this little device. I will tell you I've crashed it twice already. But because (laughs) it's a lot less cost than the Phantom was, which I never crashed, 
I'm not too upset about it. So I picked this up on sale for about 150 bucks. Generally, they go for about 189. It's still expensive. Don't get me wrong, but it's not $600 Phantom that you know if it just runs away from you or crashes in the water, you're $600 out of luck. So I feel like I'm, I'm going to be a little more daring with this thing. That sounds awesome. I would love to see some of the footage that you shoot with it. Yeah, no, I'm never going to share that with you because you're like professional and uh, there's just no <laughs> way I'm going to let that you. Is see, there you go. You're, you called me mean at the end of Destination Linux and now you're calling me mean again. Well, I'm, I'm just saying you're a pro. Me. I mean, who wants their work, their <laughs> amateur crap work of a drone, you know, evaluated by a pro? I'll put it out there, but no. you better be nice. <laughs> the only time that I am judgy is when I see cell phone pictures in ads for products. That's when I'm judging. Well, that makes sense. That's fair enough. Well, I will give everybody an update on how the drone piloting goes. I don't don't expect much, though, because, like I said, it's kind You're of... You're going to be a pro in three days. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this episode of Hardware Addicts and the entire Destination Linux network is now sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get all of this plus access to the world-class customer service support for as low as $5 per month. Or you could use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. Ryan would say that's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has over 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and framework. Get started on DigitalOcean for two months free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. All right, so now on to our core story here. We're going to talk about the power of ARM processors. So we've talked about on the show Intel versus AMD. We've talked about NVIDIA versus Intel versus AMD and GPUs. But there's another competitor out there in the market that likely has all of these companies trying to figure out how to compete or incorporate their technology into their current architecture. And that company, that threat is ARM. So to put this whole discussion in perspective, because I know that this subject can really rub some people who are very attached to x86 the wrong way, we need to first kind of talk about the dominance that ARM has. So according to their website, to date, ARM partners have shipped more than 160 billion ARM-based chips and an average of more than 22 billion chips just over the past three years that they've shipped. They or their partners make GPUs as well, like the ARM Mali and CPUs like the Snapdragon 865. We talked about this last week and some of the most powerful phones out there by Samsung. They're all utilizing the Snapdragon 865. They power cell phones, tablets, TVs, AI, machine learning, supercomputers, laptops, system-on-the-chip devices like Raspberry Pi. And now they're even coming after the server market. 
Arm is a very interesting company, and we're going to kind of take it apart at certain levels. We're not going to go super deep into all of it, but it'll give you enough information to kind of understand why I say Arm is an interesting competitor out there that you're going to see a lot more of. First of all, I am pretty much could guarantee if you have any technology in your home, if you're a hardware geek like us, you probably have something, if not many things in your home that's running an ARM processor, just based off that list Absolutely. I gave there alone, right? <laughs> Most of your cell phones and things are all utilizing ARM, but a lot of people kind of stop there and say, okay, yeah, it's a little, it's a little mini gadget type CPU or device or architecture. It's not really something made for desktop computers. And I think by the end of this episode, your opinion might change on that. So the first thing I want to talk about is ARM itself. So ARM just licenses this technology and architecture out. So when we talk about the Snapdragon 865, that's actually made by Qualcomm, not ARM. So when you hear about ARM processors, a lot of times you're talking about the technology, the license that ARM has basically put out there for anybody to utilize. And in fact, Companies like AMD have licensed technology from ARM to produce their own variations because they're starting to see the market turn towards this ARM base. ARM obviously is dominating in many of the markets that a lot of people want to play in. I mean, look how heavily Apple itself has gotten into the mobile market and kind of pushing mobile as the future. And now they're coming off of places like the desktop. They're going after the desktop. They're going after the servers. And so that brings us kind of to the main story here, which is something I saw in the news that blew me away. And that's this new Ampere Ultra processor that's been announced. Has anybody no, heard No, no of- funny little sound bite from Michael saying Ultra in a Fred Ripper way. Yeah, because they well, spelled I mean, it with an A, Michael. So they spell. I mean, it's it's ultra. I mean, I, I would I would make it like a little more fancy, but it it doesn't have the same Thread Ripper value in the marketing terms. <laughs> so that's why. But Ampere, Ampere Ultra, Ampere. <laughs> there you go. You got to say it <laughs> yeah. with a little bit of an accent. Little, yeah, a little, a little some pizzazz on it. Yeah. This is really trying to steal the server market. I think in a much bigger way than we've seen before with ARM processors. There are other ARM-based servers out there, but they're not really, nothing that I've seen, at least to this point, has been really huge competition to take over an industry or make a a business say, well, I'm going to take out all my x86 Intels or AMDs and throw in some ARMs. But this one might just do that because it's up to 80 cores per processor that they're touting here. It's single-threaded, so every thread has its own resource dedicated to it. 96 lanes of PCIe Gen 4 and up to 4 terabytes of DRAM memory support per socket. So if you have multiple CPUs in there, you can go more than that 4 terabytes. This new design will be 7 nanometers, lower power, and it can be used, they're stating, for data analytics, artificial intelligence, databases, storage, telco stacks, edge computing, web hosting, pretty much anything you could do with the server on x86, they're saying can be done with this new processor. Okay, so ARM doesn't make their own processors. Who are they having manufacture this one? So this is coming from Ampere. You'll hear a lot of things from Qualcomm or other companies out there that are very popular that are building it. Essentially, they create this architecture, this design to say this is what an ARM processor 
that we're going to license to you will look like. This is what the new one's going to look like. This is the instruction set that goes with it. And then these companies come in and they go out and they basically build and design it and put their own flair on it and make it their own, like Samsung out there, or even Apple initially, even though Apple's kind of gone into its own production at this point away from ARM, it's still ARM-based architecture that they initially licensed out before they went and started kind of building and making their own tweaks out of it. They've basically gone out there and said, we want 20% of the server market. And now you can see that it's got some big offerings to make that start to happen. And the great thing about ARM and the thing that makes it so alluring to so many people is the low power usage. And because of that yeah, low power usage, everyone wants to lower costs and, and it allows you to happen. It allows that to happen. And also insane battery life. <laughs> well, yeah, for phones. So we already know that they're, they're lower power because they can run on phones. So if this is even more low power than their regular low power, what does that mean? How much juice does this thing actually need to run, especially with 80 cores? Yeah, they didn't give a TDP on this one yet. But, you know, you've seen TDPs in the ARM world that go far lower than your new Intels and pretty much on par, sometimes lower, depending on the application, than even the new Ryzen 7 nanometer lineup. So you could just imagine that the processor instruction set that's being used in ARM is more efficient in certain tasks to begin with because it's yeah. just a lot, a lot less bloated. And then at the same time, you're just utilizing a lot less power per socket that you're going to need for all of these. And I think that in itself is a pretty alluring to the market for the businesses out there to take a look at this. But also, because ARM has just made such a big impact, I think it's alluring from that aspect alone. I mean, think about how many devices and things run on ARM today. And the biggest yeah, holdup. I have a lot of products that are ARM based, and that's just, it's crazy how much they have, like how much dominance they have, yet they still have this sort of reputation of being like a secondary player. Even though, yeah, they're in everything from cell phones to home security equipment, right? I mean, they're everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Televisions that you're running, probably a lot of the devices in your home are going to be running are running some type of ARM processor. Now, I have seen that these 80 cores up to 210 watts is what I'm seeing, at least advertised. Now, the processor is not out, so things can change on that pretty quickly. But if you're thinking about 80 core processor at 210 watts, it's pretty low for all 80 yeah. cores there. And lower heat output. I mean, in, in a server world, that would be amazing to have that much less heat output in your server room. The issue I always saw with ARM is that their instruction set are so like separate for each device. So like when you have an ARM for a particular phone, doesn't mean it's going to be compatible with the ARM from another phone. You have to build stuff specifically for these different processors. And I wonder how much practical aspects this 80 core processor will have because I assume that they will have to build stuff specifically for this processor because of the way ARM works. Yeah, I'm not aware that you would have to. There may be companies that kind of deviate so heavily from ARM's initial instruction set that they don't have the compatibility across the board. But for the most part, I believe that if, if you're sticking to ARM's design documentation, then you should have that compatibility 
regardless. I've not heard that you wouldn't have that. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I, I think that that's probably a problem of people kind of going off, especially as ARM really started right. taking off and doing their own thing versus kind of sticking to the standard that they've set. Yeah, trying to be unique and offer things that no one wants. Absolutely. There's more to this story, though. I think that's pretty exciting. You know, there's a lot of claims being made. Like, for instance, they're saying that their chip is faster than a 64-core AMD Epic processor. It's faster than Intel's 28-core high-end Xeon Cascade Lake chip. So they're really out there saying, hey, not only are you going to get a processor that, you know, is going to be low power, has all of these capabilities but you're going to get something that's even faster than the offerings out there from AMD and Intel. And I'm sure that doesn't make AMD or Intel very happy that companies are going out there and saying that. Now, I don't know what the threat vector is because telling a company, hey, go replace your server architecture with ARM tomorrow is a very costly idea. But for those who are building out, it's certainly a new competitor in there, which means hopefully better prices for consumers, for businesses out there that are wanting to run the servers. Well, and as I understand it, so ARM uses much more simple instructions and the software has to be written to use ARM. So is the server software available to run on this new processor? That's such a good question. I guess it really comes down to if you build it, will the software manufacturer support it? And I guess it's a matter of if they take enough of the business away, if there's enough hype around it, will people move? Now, I will tell you that I can't speak to the server world specifically on what software has been moved to ARM and what hasn't, but I can tell you from a desktop standpoint, a personal computer standpoint, you have Adobe moving their software for ARM support. You have Microsoft Office with ARM support. You have Chrome with ARM support. You have games like Fortnite, PUBG, Call of Duty, all running on ARM-based devices. So I would say that the software companies are taking ARM a lot more seriously And as a result, you're probably going to see that software start to really go over to that architecture. I mean, I think without the mobile devices, ARM would probably be struggling in this like any of the companies. But the mobile devices, if you think about it, I can leave my house without my laptop. There are many times that I have my keys and I have my cell phone. I don't need my laptop. I have to have my cell phone, I feel like, anywhere I go. And if you think about from that dominant standpoint, there's not a lot of competition for how powerful ARM has become and how much of a necessity it's become for your life. And certainly the popularity of the phone market, especially right now, far exceeding, I think, the capabilities of the PC market as far as sales go. So from that perspective, yeah, I think the cell phone market certainly has played a big part in ARM's growth. Yeah, for sure in ARM's growth. I, I just think that it's it's worth pointing out that the software made for Android devices would not be necessarily working on any ARM particular because of the way that Android is built. So like specific to their, their structure that it's, uh, it's essentially only works in Android. And I think that means that most of the software that's made for ARM in the sense of having its grow through the phones, isn't going to be relevant to any of their server stuff or really anything else that for that matter. Uh, but I do think that there are a lot of things that especially like, the web-based stuff like web hosting, you know, like there's a, a lot of things that are, that don't require any compiling, which makes it easier. Like with Python, you don't, you just do an interpretation and with PHP is the same thing. As long as you have the runtime, you don't have to worry about whether it compiles or not. So that makes it a, a, a big value for ARM to be able to use that. 
So it's, it's interesting. Some of the stuff that they're referring to does allow you to not have to worry about compiling, which would solve a lot of the problems in terms of ARM compatibility. Absolutely. And so that's why it's good to have the software Padawan on here or software. Software Sage on here. Yeah, I was like, I was like, I got something. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm the Sage. But it was kind of funny because we got to the point. Was like, hey, I know this stuff. I actually know the software part. Yay, my turn. So it goes even deeper, though. So you know, I envision a world where people are going to start saying, "Hey, I have an ARM inside," or they're going to have stickers on their computer instead of Intel inside. It's going to say ARM inside. And I think there's a lot of big companies that are dreaming this way as well. Windows, for instance, new Surface line carrying a Qualcomm Snapdragon processor, also running a modified version of Windows 10. So I think they're seeing a huge future here with ARM. Of course, you have to look at Apple as well as a big player in here. They're utilizing this instruction set in their architecture. And we know Apple has been pushing heavily this idea of getting rid of your basic desktop and laptop. And you could just walk around with an iPad in there. But there's also a lot of rumors. And in fairness, though, these rumors have been around for several years. But there's a lot of rumors that the new MacBooks and things Apple will be coming out with will include ARM processors and not include Intel. Whether that is true or not, time will tell. But that's what the rumor is out there. And certainly Apple doing a lot of their own design on their ARM-based architecture, you know, it would make sense that they would slap one of those in there. But Apple has a big push in the market when it comes to things like Adobe and other big software companies Mm -hmm. to, and and if you add Microsoft in there as well, to basically say, hey, this is where it's going. So what's the benefit though? Why would Microsoft or Apple really want to push this? And a lot of it, I think, comes down to cost. Or size, size of the overall device. That's what brings it most out to me is there's a continually big push of make my laptop thinner. And with something like an ARM device that needs less power, that produces less heat, if you can get the same amount of real world work done, have a smaller, lighter device that doesn't need a massive fan system in it, I can definitely see why they'd want to go that route. But are you saying that maybe they would be doing, even though that's based on ARM, that Apple is, their stuff is significantly different than it wouldn't be ARM or technically, I guess? They've kind of gone their own way. They've they've gone rogue with it, much like, as I understand it, anyways, much like Apple typically does. They they've taken the initial ARM architecture and changed it and modified it so heavily that most people really, even though it's based on ARM's initial designs, don't consider it say in comparison to the Snapdragon. They'll compare them, but they're kind of completely wow. different worlds to Qualcomm Snapdragon, which would be more closely aligned to i would say arm than apple's new architectures again as i understand it apple does its own thing so it's it's kind of hard to really figure them out (laughs) yeah i i I, okay so that my next question for that does that mean it's like if if apple starts pushing this a lot and they get more momentum do you think it might harm the charm of arm Wow. I love how you add rhymes and things into all of the stories. I don't think I don't think so. I think it's only You're going welcome. to enhance it at the end of the day because it's it's the instruction set at, that everyone will need to move their software towards that's really going to take over a lot of the work here. And so if your instruction set is utilized, if they stay with the same risk instruction set, then I think it's going to help everybody in the ARM arena. Okay, cool. 
you can see that they've made a push for the servers. You can see they've made a push for the desktop. We've seen little iterances of this. You've probably seen laptops out there, Chromebooks and different things that have an ARM-based CPU and GPU in them. Now, they've never been something where you're like, yes, I got an ARM. Now I'm going to really be able to rock and roll on my machine. It's really been about low cost. I think you're starting to see ARM come into the market in a much bigger way. The specs on these chips are much more impressive, and they've really been waiting for the software to catch up to where the hardware is today. And so I'm just saying, I'm not saying ARM's going to take over tomorrow. I'm just saying they're making some big plays here, and I'm absolutely certain have AMD and Intel's attention. All right, so let's get into our brain filler here because, you know, when we were talking about the specs last week on some of the phones, I could see a lot of people probably would get blurry-eyed because we kind of read off, like if you read off the Snapdragon 865 flagship, for instance, it's going to read something like this. The 865 integrates a prime core that clocks at 2.84 gigahertz and three ARM Cortex-A77 performance cores, which can reach up to 2.42 gigahertz. Finally, all this is complemented by four power-saving ARM Cortex-A55 cores that clock up to 1.8 gigahertz. So if you're used to hearing specs from an x86 all, world, this sounds no, that's like all, that's No, that's all super, super understandable, basic things. Uh, thanks for coming to the show. Everybody understands that now. <laughs> and so this multiple CPU thing is really confusing. I remember the first time I saw, I looked at it and I was like, what are they talking about? Which one is it? Are they using the, is there just different versions? Are they using the 2.42 core or are they using the 2.8 core? Is it like sometimes it feels like having an A55 and just other times just, you know, it just is not in the mood. So it's an A77. You know, you're not really wrong there because that all of this is about <laughs> ARM's design and it's not more about mood, but really the task that it's up to is why it switches between these cores. And this is what makes ARM really unique because it uses this big little architecture, which essentially means it can hit impressive speeds when it wants to. So that prime core at 2.84 gigahertz, it can utilize that when it's gaming or doing something really um, power intensive. And then it can scale back. This is its power saving capability to other cores like the A55s that are only at 1.8 gigahertz because maybe it's in standby or maybe it's just looking, you're looking at emails or something that doesn't require a lot of power. And it also can mix and match these different cores to accomplish different tasks. And that's what allows some of its efficiency in being able to do things at such low power is its ability to switch between those cores. And of course, they can shove all those cores onto a chip because it's running at seven nanometers, which if you've been following the show, you already know what that means. And if you don't, you need to go back and listen to all the other episodes. There's also the difference in these chips in the RISC versus CISC. See what I did there, Michael? RISC versus CISC. Isn't sure. that awesome? Sure. Whatever either one of those mean. Okay, so our processor <laughs> uses the reduced instruction set so reduced instruction set, R-I-S-C, computer. And in fact, yeah, that's yeah. what ARM mm -hmm. stands for, Advanced Risk Machines. But originally, it was named ACORN. And for those who want a little history lesson, that was in the BBC Micro initially. And there's this really cool story of how basically they put this chip in and it was so low wattage that they didn't even hook the power supply up fully uh, to the motherboard. And somehow it was turning on. They and forgot they, to yeah, hook the power supply They couldn't up. figure out why it was running. Uh -huh. because it only needed <laughs> one-tenth of a watt to work. I mean, that, that's kind of awesome. It's crazy. 
Um, and then it, of course, was in the Apple Newton eventually. So ARM's been there for a long time. It's not like it's popped up out of nowhere. It's really been a lot well, of I mean, obviously, the Newton's what brought it to the forefront. Naturally, yeah, because Apple. <laughs> <laughs> so Intel or AMD CPUs that we're used to, they use a more complex instruction set. Or CISC, see? Complex instruction yep. set computer. And I they have rich instruction sets capable of doing very complex things with a single instruction. Basically, this all boils down to different ways of managing instructions. That's why you typically don't see ARM being used to run garden variety windows just yet. Although now they're making versions that are capable of running on ARM-based processors because all the software has been designed for this x86 instruction set, this CISC instruction set. So now when you see an ARM processor and a list of all these speeds and all these different cores, it's not like, oh, if you buy this Samsung, you get that one that runs at 1.8. If you get, they're all mixed onto one single chip. And that's the efficiency. That's the little big architecture, the cool thing about ARM processors. So I've got a question for you. So these ARM devices can have these multiple cores with multiple speeds, but I, from what I understand, the reduced instruction set, it's if you have an instruction for each thing it needs to do. So the complex one, like you said, you give an instruction and then it can figure out what it needs to do to make that instruction happen. Whereas with reduced instruction set, you need to tell it exactly how it goes about this job. and that, But it can do each instruction with each pass of the clock so that it can do them extremely fast, but it needs these very small bytes of instructions to do that. Does it have these multiple cores? So at the same time, it can multitask? Yeah. So this starts getting really complex into, for instance, when we go back to the Ampere Ultra Processor, did you notice I said that it was single threaded? So every thread has its own resources Whereas we talk about in the x86 platform, multi-threaded all the time, and that's a big deal. But all of this kind of boils down to the fact that when we talk about that AI elements that are built in the x86, which some people say are the bloated part, is because of all those layers of basically AI or ways of splitting up the tasks and multi-threading your CPU so that you can do all of these advanced things. But as it gets more advanced and gets more bloated, it also becomes more cumbersome and more difficult. So some may argue, and I'm not necessarily have taken a side here yet, that the risk platform, the ability of handling those single instruction sets one at a time, is actually a superior way of handling it for the future. It's a lot less bloat, a lot less capable of having somebody kind of get in there and hack things, a lot less AI-based. But my guess is you're going to see risk much like CISC did start to get more advanced. They're going to throw more things at it. There are going to be new versions of it, and they'll probably start implementing new ways of threading those cores and things in the future, meaning it's possible it will go down that road. Or if it doesn't, it'll go down some other road where 10 years from now, we'll be talking about how it's bloated. But So you're saying with the <laughs> risk processors, there's less of a risk? Right now. Uh, yeah. Currently. And well done, Michael. Well Thank done. Thank you. That the dad jokes have to come out, or this would not be. No, we right. couldn't do the podcast exactly. without dad jokes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, it's uh, it's un, it's impossible for me not to do a podcast without at least one dad joke. So, 
So, Michael, do you feel like now when you see those specs, were you one of those individuals that saw those and was like, what the heck are they talking about? Or did you just ignore it? Oh, I totally understood every single piece of, no, I had no idea any of what I was reading. It's like, hey, it's the ARM, a Cortex, uh, okay, sure, gotcha. They said it's the good one, let's get it. Yeah, this is the the latest one of this. Oh, it's the same number. I don't understand what's, okay, sure. I did like the Snapdragon part, though. That's a really good branding name. Good job. Yeah, I do like Snapdragon. That's a pretty cool name in there. Qualcomm is definitely a big player in this. It's interesting because this is an area that I think, even myself, that I need to do more exploring on. So I want to preface all this with just saying that there may be certain things in here that we could expand on further or get into more details on how all this works because it's quite advanced. You'd really need to be an engineer to understand all the various facets of it. But from a consumer level... No, not really. (laughs) From a consumer level standpoint, I think the the key here is to really understand there are two different architectures, but they're trying to get the one architecture on ARM to basically be able to handle the same things that we're seeing in x86. And while that may have been laughable five years ago, they're actually getting very close to making that a reality, and the competition's really heating up. But because of the way that ARM's based and that they license this technology and these designs out to different companies, it's kind of an interesting kind of competition because you've seen AMD and others start to explore, well, why don't we take some of these designs and do something with it? As I understand, AMD's version of the ARM architecture really never went anywhere. They couldn't really make it do anything that extensive, but that doesn't mean that they won't be forced to in the future as Microsoft, who's developing its own Surface lines, obviously, I think, from a lot of disappointment from the manufacturers and what they've done with Windows devices, forced Microsoft's hand to come in and say, hey, we're going to create our own line. We're going to do something exciting. And I think they did that. I think they accomplished that with the Surface line. It really brought back Microsoft into the world of hardware where we thought, okay, Microsoft actually can produce some pretty nice-looking hardware out there. And, of course, you have Apple pushing this is well so heavily and you have Samsung and others that are pushing ARM. It really points to the fact that I wouldn't ignore ARM out there and say that they're just going to stay in these mobile devices or your TVs. I think they're coming for something much bigger. And based on some of the specs that they're rolling out and some of these advertised processors and what they're stating are they're capable of, ARM's going to be a real contender. And there may be a future hardware ad- episode where I'm like, hey, I'm pulling out my Ryzen 3900X and putting in a new Snapdragon. Who knows? Who knows? We'll have to so, see. so basically, what you're saying is that the 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 ARM architecture has potential, and people shouldn't just keep them at arm's length. Oh my gosh, Wendy! Oh. Please stop him. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy, this is your job. You're supposed to be the adult. He's too far away. I can't backhand him from <laughs> back- miles <exactly>. and miles. <laughs> Social distancing. <laughs> So let's get into our listeners' favorite segment here, Camera Corner. So, Wendy, you have kind of a special thing this week I thought was really awesome. Tell us about what's going on in Camera Corner this week. Yes, this week I asked for our listeners' camera gear questions. And we had some amazing questions come in. I'm so excited to answer these. And I would love to keep this section going. Because it really brings you guys what you want to know about what's going on in this camera space. So you can do that by going to the discourse form. 
and leaving a question there. It's in the photography section. And there'll also be a link to that in the show notes. Or if you are not on the discourse form, which you should be, you can drop the question into Telegram. But so I can find it, make sure make sure you hashtag it HA Camera Corner. So I can do a search in the Telegram and pull your questions up. So let's jump into them. Nice. The first one is from Astronaut Supplier. And he says, what cameras can be flashed with good open source firmware? I heard you can do this with some Canon models, but what about others? Any good recommendations? Since I have downgraded to a cheapo phone so that I can flash Lineage OS, great phone ROM, by the way, I have lost to be able to take good pictures. Are there any good point and shoot alternatives to camera phones that you can flash with open source firmware? I absolutely love this question and it made me think about what open source projects are there in the camera space and I need to do some more digging because this could be such an amazing overall topic. So I will get back to you on this one. I know of a few projects, but I'd really love to to dig into it, research it some more and pull out just as many options as I possibly can for that one. I feel like this is a huge risk that you would be taking, though, on the ROMs of a camera because it's very expensive. And if you flash it... How is that any different than your phone? Because your your phone can be like a $1,000 device, and if you flash it wrong... Well, how dare you, Wendy? First of all, when I think about your equipment <laughs> and, and you going through this, I'm thinking thousands of dollars. I mean, phones could be $150, $200. I mean, most people are flashing right. ROMs on a phone. Uh, there are exceptions. I'm not saying they don't exist, but I see most people going out and buying, you know, one, two-year-old phone, maybe more, and then flashing a ROM on it and kind of bringing it back to life. When you're talking about, like, taking your professional camera that you use for your business and flashing an open-source ROM on it, I mean, would you would you do that? Would you take that risk? Well, you don't have to do it with the newest and latest cameras. Chicken. And we'll we'll see if I will do it to mine. <laughs> like I said, I wanna wanna do some more deep dive into this. I do have a Nikon and from the research I've done so far, that is much harder to do with the Nikon devices. So it may not even be possible for me at this point. But you can still get older model cameras or used cameras to do this with. So I would love to just kind of research some of these options and make sure that I'm giving the most accurate information there. Well, I can't wait to hear what you come back with. I also want to know, I'm I'm interested to understand what the advantages of having open source on your camera would be, because we know on a computer, it can mean security, it can mean privacy, it can mean things like that. But what does, what would it give you as a follow-up question far as a camera goes because i don't think but maybe i'm wrong that your canon or nikon are out there you know taking all your photos and uploading it to its own database to figure out what you're taking pictures of i'm sure the software you download it to might but the camera itself not sure it's as much of a of a risk but maybe i'm wrong and it's more for extra features that you're not getting directly for the manufacturer so you can get more out of this piece of hardware from this additional software that didn't come from the manufacturer. Okay, now I'm intrigued. So there probably could be things even that they purposefully lock out on the camera because you bought the lower end one that maybe the camera's capable of, but they locked it out 
uh, in the software side that you might be able to. That's pretty cool. Now I'm intrigued. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to dig into this more on a future episode. So tune in next time for that one. Linux user asks, what would you recommend to someone who would like to get into it, but doesn't know anything about it in terms of best brands, the current mainstream tech, anything in particular to avoid, etc., for a good starting general purpose camera kit? And this is going to kill me to say it used to be Nikon, but I'm going to say the starter kits from Canon are absolutely amazing. They're DSLRs are absolutely fantastic. They have great two lens kits, usually within the three to $500 range. November, if you are really on a budget and you want to get the most bang for your buck, usually in November, you can find amazing deals on camera kits. You're talking Black Friday, aren't you? Well, not necessarily Black Friday. Typically anymore, the entire month of February or November. And this includes home appliances. It is now the time of year that if we need something new in that range, that's when we buy it because they are on great sales. And it's usually they're trying to get rid of the last of a certain model. So it was last year's model. They're trying to get rid of it at a super good price. And that is an amazing time to buy. That's a good tip in general. And also like the November, you know, the Black Friday stuff is at one point it went from being Black Friday single day, then started being a week. And now I think it actually is a month now. It's like, yeah, it's, it's the month of November. Look for, like I said, if you're, you're on a budget and you can wait till November, that is an amazing time to buy, to get it, get stuff at an amazing discount. And Canon really does try to price their entry level DSLR kits pretty good. And I think the Sony mirrorless, you there yeah i think their their starter ones are actually pretty good price now they're at the beginning because the technology was so new they were priced a little higher but i think those are starting to come down sony makes an amazing product they really do and i would recommend their stuff all day long even though i don't have one myself yet yet i like it <laughs> Then we jump over to Baltimore. What is a great resource to learn how to use the camera for video? And I have to say my absolute favorite resource, one for learning how to take pictures and for video stuff is Creative Live. Not only do they offer stream classes for free every day, so you never know what classes are going to be able to for free that day. You need to look at their calendar and see, but I have not taken a class from them that I don't like. And they do have some on using your regular DSLR camera or now your mirrorless and shooting video with it. It's an amazing resource. They have great classes and really the best I've seen in that space. We're going to bleep their name out. So people, you won't understand what that is until they sponsor us. But just yeah, know it's a, a really good <laughs> company. Yeah. That's it. It's a good idea. What she said was beep, beep. <laughs> All right. So were there any other questions you got this week? Yes. We've got one more question that I would love to cover. And that's from Wall JT. 
He says, I'd be interested in some advice in buying used secondhand cameras along the lines of how to quickly spot common problems or signs the previous owner mistreated advice. And we talked a little bit last week about getting used lenses and some of the things you need to look for. And when it comes to camera bodies, you really want to be able to handle them and let you know they're coming from a reputable person. So if you're buying them on eBay, you don't want to buy them just from some random person on eBay. Like with anything else, you'd really want to pay attention to the, the feedback from other people. And if they're really low rated, you wouldn't want to buy from them. So that's why I'm saying go with something like B&H Photo or Adorama if you need to buy online. They're great companies. They have used stuff that they've looked over and you can trust that used stuff. If you're trying to buy locally, you need to be able to get your hands on it. Look at the body, make sure it's clean. If it's been dropped a lot, you'll be able to see that. And then if they won't let you take some test pictures with it, you definitely don't want that camera. So I'd I'd rather, I'd really rather you go with a company that's looked over it. But if you want to go hands-on, make sure they're willing to let you test it look inside, look at the camera body, take some test shots, making sure that everything works. One of the biggest things you come into with used cameras, and this would be on the DSLR side, would be the mechanism inside that works that mirror can only last for so long. And you'll want to ask them what the shutter count is, because if it's an extremely high shutter count, then you'll probably want to to not buy that because the mechanism will need to be replaced soon. Now, is that shutter count count more applicable to each camera you're looking at? Meaning, is it 50,000 pretty much a set rule and that's what you go with no matter what? Or is it if you're looking at this specific Canon model, then, you know, 50,000 still considered low and 10,000 is like brand new? Or how does it work? So I... I'd really want to keep regardless. And you're only looking at DSLRs with shutter count because it's this mechanism that's working back and forth that's flipping that mirror from the down position. So you can look through the viewfinder and see up out of the way. So the sensor is exposed and take the picture and then flip it back down. So it's not something you need to worry about in any of the mirrorless cameras. And, you know, if you're... 100,000 and under, I'd say you're in a pretty good place. Usually when you hit around 250 to 300,000, that's when that mechanism is really going to start breaking down and needing to be replaced. And if it's getting really close to that, you may not want to have it done. Um, Even more so in the Nikon space where the only way that part is getting replaced is if it is now sent to Nikon where they don't have the uh, servicing in non-Nikon facilities anymore. So is that a big reason why you recommended earlier the Canon starter kits? Because is the service center issue? That's exactly why I went ahead and recommended the Canon. Because of what Nikon has done, as we talked about in the first episode, I really don't want to deal with a company that I can't have my device fixed somewhere else with genuine parts. 
So I, that's why I'm going to say go ahead and go with the Canon. Go ahead and go with the Sony. Both are excellent companies. Their entry levels are still great cameras that you can get at great prices. And you are not dealing with this service center issue. Nice. Good advice. And also good advice on buying used things. One thing I would recommend it. it I don't know how this translates into the camera world because this is more yours. But I generally like trying to find local shops to pick up used things from because you kind of start to build this club and you can geek out with them and you'd be surprised how much information you can get from a good local shop. Now, if you walk in a local shop and they're just, what do you want? And, you know, they're not paying attention. Just walk right out. But if you find one where you tell them, hey, I'm new in the, into photography, I'm really interested in this, this is what I'm wanting to do, and you could see them kind of light up and start going through all of these options and really care about it, then it could be kind of a way of getting into that club, if you will, and starting to know some of your local people who are also geeks in that particular field. Now, what has your experience been like with camera shops? Sadly, in my area, there are not a lot of actual camera shops shops, but we do have some pawn shops around here that carry some stuff like that. And some places are great and they will let you pull stuff out of the case. They'll let you look at it. In my case, the ones around here will, you know, there we live in an area where they've been great about that. And I have picked up different older camera lenses that way. It is great suggestion, a great way to go about finding some of that stuff. Awesome. Well thank you so much, Wendy, for filling our brains in the camera corner once again. So that's it. Our fifth episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the show, the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the amazing content on the Destination Linux network. Head to destinationlinux.network to check out all the great podcasts and YouTube partners available. There is an endless amount of content to fill your brains with. And as much of us in various countries are sitting in quarantine, you might need that destination Linux.network content more than ever. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. So do you want another episode of Hardware Addicts? Well, fine. You've twisted our arm. See you next week.